Hello and welcome to the History Show on Near 90 FM. My name is John Dorney and if you would like to listen to this or previous episodes of the programme, please go to nearpodcast.org slash pcast slash. This week we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Porig Lenehan. Porig is a historian of early modern Ireland. He's written Confederate Catholics at War, The Battle of the Boyne and Consolidating Conquest. Porik, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Porik, we're going to be talking today about the writing of history in early modern Ireland. But before we talk about the history or the writing of history, briefly, can you tell us why these two centuries, the 16th and the 17th century, are so contentious in Irish history? The early modern period, compared to the medieval or the modern, is in itself untidy. It's got these jarring kind of bits of the old coexisting with the new. Now, in the case of Ireland, it's a period of conquest, forcible incorporation of Ireland within a three-kingdom polity, and ultimately, at the end of it, within a unitary kingdom of Great Britain and, and Ireland. That is something that doesn't happen organically. It is an externally imposed forceful process conquest. Therefore, questions of violence, expropriation, religious change, top-down cultural change, all of these issues loom large. And the legacy of that period is of two communities on the island, which were historically, for much of that period, at odds with one another, with the exception of what turned out to be something of a false dawn in 1798. Mm-hmm. Now, George Orwell very famously said that whoever controls the present controls the past. So what attempts did the, the conquerors, the English conquerors of, of 16th century Ireland make to, to shape a history of what they were doing and where they were coming from? Well, I suppose the best known is Edward Spencer's uh, view of the present state of Ireland, which was circulating in manuscript from, from the, mid, the late 1590s. It wasn't actually published until 1633. Spencer is well known because he was a poet, the author of The Fairy Queen, I suspect more often written about than actually read. But Spencer's view has two people in dialogue and they evaluate the Irish problem. And for him, the problem is based on a false premise. The solution of gradual reform, peaceful reform, using normal peacetime legal process to bring the Irish to a more advanced state of civility. It's assumed that that's, that's, that, that's what should go on. That's wrong. You need to start with violence. Evils, he says, must, or Irenaeus, one of the speakers says, must first be cut away with a strong hand. In other words, you have to destroy before you can build. A well-known quote where he's talking about the rates coming out of woods, the famine that was associated with the, the, the Desmond uprising in the 1580s, that's often assumed to be a reaction of horror. It's not. He's saying this is what this is what needs to happen. We must break before we can build. Morrison, finds, Mar- finds Morrison would be another ideologue of conquest. He was associated with, he was the secretary of Mountjoy, the man who, who perfected, who, brought, who finished the conquest of Ireland in 1603. And Morrison's view of the Irish, he doesn't articulate a programmatic response, but his view of the Gaelic Irish is invariably hostile in his depiction of their clothes, their cleanliness, their sexual habits, their diet, their agriculture, their primitive barbarous, dirty, all of the above. Uh, John Davies, his discovery of the true causes, 1612, he was exercised, Davies was, by the problem, why did the earlier Anglo-Norman conquest fail? What happened to those English settlers? 
And what happened to them was, as Morrison knows this week, they degenerated. They moved down a notch in the scale of being, as it were, from their original genus or people to the other. So they were absorbed by the Irish. How do we stop that happening again? That's, that exercises Davies. And again, his prescription is that he uses the agricultural metaphor. As the husbandman tills the soil, you've got to break the soil first. Break the land first, then you can you can sow the seed, but you have to break the land first. So they're all advocating a violent, and I use the word violent advisory, shock to native society. A destruction of it, in effect, before you can build something new on its in its ruin. Earlier ideas of gradualist reform have been have been cast aside. So th- when English writers are, are writing about the conquest of Ireland, they're saying that it's improving Ireland, but that it can only be improved by smashing it first, essentially. Well, they're not talking about Ireland so much as the Gaelic-Irish. They want to build something new in Ireland. And that something new will be the transplantation of English civility. That may happen by transforming the natives, making them civil. Civil is assumed to be English. It's assumed to be better. That's axiomatic. The only dispute is whether you do so gradually or quickly by violent expropriation and conquest. Or else do you implant, do you plant people, and how many, to accelerate that process. So you're trying two different tacks. You're trying to replace the existing natives, and you're trying to acculturate them or civilise them, literally. Now, this was a process which culminated in what we call now the Nine Years' War and the Battle of Kinsale, and, and all that followed the establishment of the English Kingdom of Ireland. When Irish people were looking back at this process in the 17th century and they were trying to explain it when they were writing histories, people like Geoffrey Keating, Donald O'Sullivan Bear, how did they interpret what had happened in Ireland or how did they present what had happened in Ireland? The most common motif in the 17th century, and this is true for the wars of the mid-century as well, as for the Nine Years' War, is the providentialist motif. It's not a particularly Irish response. It's the old question, the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does why did this happen to us? Why was it? And the only explanation you can come at is that it is in some way Jesus Jesus, the revenge of God. It's God's judgment on us. We have done something wrong. And it's finding what that what that was, agreeing on what it was, whether it's unity, division, other forms of sinfulness, and remedy, remedying it is the prescription. So that's a general. If there was one common team that is that runs through this 17th century. But you have um, you have a plethora of writing from the Irish Catholic side. Philip O'Sullivan Bear's um, Catholic History of Ireland, written in Lisbon, 1621. You have Keating's Forus Fassa, which is an enormously influential uh, Forus Fassa array, and a foundation of knowledge of Ireland, which is a sort of a mytho-history of Ireland. So it's most important because in his preface, he is, at, uh, he is at pains to disagree with the Gerald of Wales, the 12th century historian of the Anglo-Norman conquest, where he had castigated the native Irish, and he is he's taking issue with that. For, so for somebody like Keating in his deed, introduction to the, the Forest Facet, the likes of Gerald of Wales, Davies, Morris and Spencer, they're dumb beetles. They're interested in the walk along the ground, they ignore the flowers, they they ignore the achievements of Gaelic society and they, they concentrate on the less wholesome aspects of native society and they exaggerate those and they concentrate on those completely. 
there's an awful lot of writing from the Irish Catholic side. In the 1640s, you have writings like the Commentarius Rinicinianus or Cambrensis Versus, the Rinicini Commentaries or the Opposition, a versus the critique of Cambrensis, respectively from O'Farrell and O'Connell on the one hand and John Lynch on the other. These writings are fighting about what went wrong in the 1640s, whose fault it was. Should we have supported Charles I more wholeheartedly or should we have insisted on uh, on backing the Pope and his delegate or his ambassador, his, his nuncio, the yes. papal nuncio, and backing him more wholeheartedly. When you're looking at the wars of the, the Williamite Wars, you look at Charles O'Kelly's Macaria Exegidium on the one hand, uh, which takes I suppose, an anti-Richard Talbot pro-Gaelic view of the thing, and you have the the history attributed to Nicholas Plunkett. All of these uh, emerge. Very few of those are in print. They're either in Latin, and they're not translated until the 19th century, if even yet. I mean, the Commentarius has not yet been translated, and so there's still work to be done there. You have Logio Cleary's Baha Eru O'Donnell, or Life of Red Hugh O'Donnell, should be, a, I suppose, the, the most important of the Irish language ones, along with Forest Fassa. You have most of that work is in Latin. Relatively few of it, relatively little of it is, is in English, and relatively little of it is published. Much of it remains in manuscript, like the aphorismical discovery of Treasonal Faction, Richard Melling's History, The Light to the Blind, and they only are rediscovered, as it were, and edited in the 19th century. So that if you're looking at a debate between the two communities in Ireland, the English in Ireland have their Temple's History of the Rebellion, William King's State of the Protestants. They have a series of well-articulated texts in print that go into many editions. So they, as it were, set the terms of the, deba- of the debate. And the Irish, insofar as they're contesting this, they're contesting it with publications from Louvain, like Hugh Riley's Ireland's Case Stated, or French's The Settlement and Sale of Ireland. Those are relatively few in number. Most of the Irish case, to a great extent, goes by default. Mm-hmm. Just before we leave the, the 17th century, um, we mentioned Catholicism and the Pope there. So from this period, didn't Irish historians create, probably, the idea that the Catholic people and the Irish people were the, were the same thing? Well, the, I, the Irish identity is is something that is created. It's a, created by clergymen, by clerics, by the deliberate, uh, if you like, integration of the Old English those are descendants of the 12th century settlers and the Gaelic Irish. And by focusing on what they have in common, their shared religious identity, their shared historical experience, and their shared identity to the, or opposition to English government policies in Ireland. So therefore, yes, religion becomes a central building block of Irish identity in the, from the 17th century and remains so to a greater or lesser extent. And as I say, it, it sort of breaks down, perhaps, in the 1790s. Um, the sectarian lines harden again in the 18-teens and 20s, there onwards. So, yes, this is a long-term process. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of our memory and our understanding of uh, the 16th and 17th century in Ireland, uh, what's one thing that's in the way is the 19th century, and that was a time when a lot of the texts you've talked about were actually rediscovered. Can you say something about that? Um, yes, many of the texts from the 17th century were um, 
translated. I mean, many of them, many, some of them remain yet to be translated. I mean, I'm working myself with a, a classicist on a very long poem in Latin written by a Jacobite official, which has never been published, which is never in, in Latin or English or translation. It's, it's out there. So there's work still to be done. But uh, the Commentarius um, was published in, that's a multi-volume history of the 1640s, very detailed, very interesting information. That was published in Latin in the 1930s by the Irish Manuscripts Commission, but has yet to be translated. But a lot of the more accessible manuscript sources were gathered by people like uh, Gilbert, J.T. Gilbert, the, the marvellous antiquarian, and published in the, 19th, in the 19th century. So you have 19th century, the interest with this, uh, in the 17th century is not as perhaps intense as it was in the 18th century, where the debate over the 1641 rising or the massacre is at its most intense. You have Thomas Davis writes a lot about the early modern period, about the so-called Patriot Parliament, the Jacobite Parliament, a lot of his songs, poems, and historical pieces concern Owen Roe O'Neill, the, the wild geese, and so on. But for Mitchell, on the other hand, the other great exponent of 19th century nationalism, he starts his history from the Treaty of Limerick.